This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand. I don't know about the theology and the belief of Mormons. I will say without hesitation that it must be the theology, philosophy, holy scriptures, and beliefs of Mormons that make Mormons among the most kind, peaceful, law-abiding Americans. Just take a look at their behavior, and that is the only basis on which I think it's fair to judge people. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Saturday is America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Um, and thank you to everyone at The Blaze for putting our video on the uh, front of theblaze.com for a couple days this week. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, my producer of my local show here in San Diego and I went to the San Diego Pride Parade last Saturday. And uh, we played two fun games. The first game is called Which Bigot Said It? By the way, it took, for all the footage we got, and we turned it into a five-minute video, we were there for about an hour, and the very first person we talked to was dressed up like a Teletubby. So we knew it was gonna it was gonna go well right from the jump, and and, and it sure did. So we played a game called Which Bigot Said It, and we had a big magnet board, and in each of the corners were four quotes against gay marriage. Uh, you know, marriage is a religious institution between a man and a woman, and one was, uh, you know. Uh, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman because God's in the mix or whatever. Like four different pro-traditional marriage quotes. And then we had four cutouts of the heads of uh, Republicans. Bigots! Mike Huckabee, Sarah Palin, Rick Santorum, and Donald Trump. And people had to decide which bigot said which quote. And then at the end of the game, we revealed that each quote was actually from either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. So the, we had we, hilarity ensued. Uh, we, could, we we could play it here. We could play the audio, but you really gotta watch it because it's it's one thing to to listen to someone play the game, but it's another thing to watch the person wearing a neon green tutu play the game. Uh, so so <laughs> so you can watch it on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on on Facebook. Um, I don't think it's I don't know if it's still on theblaze.com now. Uh, but you can just go to our Facebook page. Is it still up there somewhere? Cool. Uh, so you can find it on theblaze.com as well. Then the second game we played, because we're like, well, that took 20 minutes to get a couple people. Um, we asked people, what percentage of the male population do you think is gay? I didn't know what people were going to say. So we just went around and people were like, 40%. <laughs> 40%. Sixty-two percent of men are gay. <laughs> so what? So we just we so we kept asking. We're like, wow, people are way off. Uh, one girl's seventy percent. Seven. I said, hold on. Seven. You think seventy percent of men are gay? She's like, oh, all right, forty. The answer is one point eight. One point eight percent of men are gay, and people are thinking sixty percent. And I was as I was telling Salcedo before uh, at the end of his show. Um, we didn't selectively edit any of this. We probably asked 50 people and no one said less than 25%. And people were thoughtful about it too. 
Right? No, the people weren't, you know, a couple of people were like, ah, 50%. And we didn't put them just because they were just, you know, half. Like, that's silly. People were, ah. 42? <laughs> so they really thought about it and came up with very specific numbers. And it's 1.8. So I, I got to thinking, like, how can this be? How how can people really think that half of men are gay? How is that possible? So there's actually a, a uh, study of psychology called social or group identity politics. Also social identity politics. And the concept of it is your sense of who you are is based on your group membership and it makes sense right we're social creatures it's not good for people to be alone we form groups and we tend to define ourselves based on that group now in and of itself there's nothing inherently wrong with that but here's the problem when your identity becomes so bound up like so tied to the group membership and your emotional significance is dependent on that group. Then you're bound to inflate to the size of the group in a way to inflate your own self-worth. If that's your identity. If, if your identity is in the group, in order to make yourself feel better, you're going to make the group bigger. And that's how people can legitimately say that 40% of men are gay because they, it's one thing to be gay, but to define yourself as gay, right? Your identity and your self-worth is in being gay. So I want to be a part of a big group, darn it. So yeah, 63% of men are gay. (laughs) It's like, what? Really think about that. So that's sort of the psychology behind why... Or how someone could possibly think that. Uh, does that make sense? Is that clear? Um, so when we were asking people in the beginning, we would tell them 1.8%. And um, everyone's reaction was the same. Everyone got sad. It was really interesting. So we actually ta- we stopped telling people the answer because I don't like making people sad. So... And that was not my, it wasn't my intent to do it. So we just, so we stopped actually telling people uh, the answer. But think about that. That's a really interesting reaction to be sad. No one got angry. In in the video, the reactions to the 1.8% are pretty much all the people that we told 1.8%, maybe 10 people. And the rest, we just, we just didn't, we didn't, we just asked and then left. Um, No one got angry. No one got defensive. They weren't combative. They got sad. It's like I, I popped their balloon. And especially on that day, everyone's excited to go to a big parade. So who am I to ruin their day? So to find out that the actual answer is 1.8%, it, it figuratively rained on their parade before it literally rained on their parade because it never rains in San Diego and it poured buckets about 10 minutes into the parade. But anyway... Um, They were sad, again, because their group identity became their self-identity. So to marginalize the size of the group, marginalize their own self-worth. So people got sad. So you can watch the video on our Facebook page. You can search for The Mike Slater Show on uh, on Facebook. Uh, It's really funny to hear people's um, 
reaction to the to which bigot said it game. Um, and real, and really a lot of here. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, we did it. We played the game with one lady. Um, at the end of the video, you can see her wearing a red shirt. 20 minutes later, she came back with her 18-year-old daughter and said, this is the first election they're going to be voting in. Can you play the game with her and her friend? So <laughs> so people embraced the game, and everyone there uh, knows that politicians are just a bunch of liars. But anyway, you can check the game on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Um, and there's actually a really important lesson here. I want to take a break here. We'll come back and, and chat about it more. But how do you define yourself? What do you define yourself based on? Because the people who we talked to at this, the Pride Parade defined themselves based off their sexual identity. Very, very clearly. So how do you define yourself? What, what group, right? We're talking about group identity, um, group identity uh, theory here with psychology. Like how, what group do you define yourself based on? Which again, isn't inherently bad, but if you go too far then it can be. There's another reason why if you go too far, it's a big problem. Because if you define yourself by a group, then you're more likely to tear down other groups. Which is why I want to come back and chat about how it's way more important to define yourself by more than just a group. So how do you define your identity? one 900 I want to come back with a thought from uh, one of my favorite authors, former Navy SEAL, former Rhodes Scholar, on what an identity should be or what, what questions we should ask ourselves to find your true identity. We'll do that coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater, excited. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. And uh, the video of our trip to the San Diego Pride Parade last week is on our Facebook page. You can just search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. You'll see it right there. Talking about group identity theory because how can the people we talked to, the 50 people we talked to, no one, or I should say everyone thought that more than 25% of men were gay. Like, how can it feel like ah, 48%? Like, what? How can you possibly think that? The answer is 1.8. So, group identity theory is the uh, is where we were just chatting about. And the short of it is uh, when you put yourself, when you identify yourself, when your self worth is in a the concept of a group and being a member of a group, in this case, based on your sexual identity, then you will naturally inflate the size of the group to inflate your own self-worth. Now, if you define yourself based off of something independent of the group, then it doesn't matter how big the group is because you are your identity is in something different than that, which is what I would encourage everyone, uh, certainly that parade and anywhere else, to, to do. Um, here, here's one other problem with group identity is when you put your identity into a group, your identity is dependent on other groups losing, right? So, so your, your group is depend. Your identity is dependent on your group winning, other groups losing, tearing down other groups. Football is a great example of this. I watched Silver Linings Playbook last weekend for the very first time. Really, really liked it. And um, 
the uh, the dad in the movie is obsessed with the Eagles, right? Crazy obsession with the Eagles, and so many people I know are obsessed, and they place their identity, their own personal identity, on being a Cowboys fan, and they get so worked up over a football game. I know people who are depressed all week if their team loses. And they're liable to get in a fight with someone who's wearing the, the wrong team's hat. I'm not even kidding. And it's because their identity, for some reason, isn't a team. So other teams must lose or else I am the loser. Now, that's football. The thing is, we do that all the time with other things like race, ethnicities, and geography, and professions and social classes and all the rest if you define yourself by a group you're more likely to tear down other groups c.s lewis talked about um pride and i love this quote he said pride is essentially competitive by its very nature pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, then there would be nothing to be proud about. So it's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So that's why people at the Pride Parade walked around and, and, and walk around thinking that 40% of men are gay because it's a competition. They have to lift up the size of their group because their identity is dependent on it. And again, my frustration is every single person at that Pride Parade is worth so much more than their sexual preference. Right, you, you, that may be a part of who you are, if you want to do that, but <clears throat> that's not who you are. You are much, much more than that. Every single person there and every single person listening, of course. I want to end with this note here. Um, this deserves a longer study, but we've got a couple minutes here. One of my favorite books is called Resilience by Eric Greitens. Incredible man. Really one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Former Navy SEAL and Rhodes Scholar. Because why not, right? <laughs> like this man, if I sat down for 10 minutes and I straight up made up a resume, I could make up anything I wanted. It could, it would not be as impressive as Eric Greitens. And he actually did these things. And in his book, he says, we all have it backwards. He says, society has it backwards. People always ask, how do you feel? We're always asking, how do you feel? When you're sick, doctors say, how do you feel? Walking around, see some friends. Hey, man, how you doing? How do you how you feel? You feeling good? That's the first question. How do you feel? And then people start to think, well, if I'm feeling a certain way, then I should act in a certain way. And if I act in a certain way often, then that builds my identity. That defines who I am. But in reality, Eric says, we got to flip it. The first question we have to ask ourselves is not, how do I feel? The question is, who am I? And who do I want to be? And once you answer that, 
then you can say, all right, I want to be this person. Therefore, I must act this way. And then when you act this way, that will determine how you feel. Do you see that? So it, it flips it. In our culture today, we believe everything you do should be determined based off how you feel. Right? Figure out how you feel, then determine how you should act. And Eric Greitens says, no, 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 no. Figure out who you want to be first. Then act. That will determine how you feel. Feeling should not be, how you feel should not drive who you are. It should be the result of who you are. Isn't that awesome? I'm not taking credit for that. I think it's brilliant. And we know it's true. We know, we know how you act determines how you feel. If you sleep for four hours, then you're in a bad mood, right? Like how you act, you don't sleep a lot, results in how you feel. If you eat junk food, you feel differently than if you eat healthy. So we know how you act determines how you feel, but we don't recognize it enough. We put such an emphasis on feelings when we should put an emphasis on our actions. So back to the uh, pride parade. It's a lot of people who define themselves on group identity, which is based on sexual identity. And when you present the truth that the group is, is 1.8% of the population, they feel less. Now, that wasn't my goal. I didn't want to make anyone feel less, which is why we stopped telling people the answer. But that's a lesson for all of us on how we define ourselves. And we have to define ourselves more than petty things. Right? We have to define ourselves on something that matters, something that lasts, something that transcends how you feel or what pop culture says you should feel or what's trendy or whatever. Right? Define yourself on something eternal. So don't worry about how you feel. <laughs> Seriously, don't worry about how you feel. Ask, who do I want to be? And then act accordingly. one 3393 Let me... I just retweeted it. So you can watch the video on our uh, Twitter, Slater Radio, and also on the Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. All right, coming up, we got a lot more to do. Um, I want to talk about the Planned Parenthood video. Most recent one, but but really just this whole thing. Because we, we talked with the... On my local show, we talked with the guy who's leading this whole thing. And there's more to come. And Planned Parenthood is even scared that there's video of an actual abortion procedure where they use the sonogram to do it also. So Planned Parenthood is freaking out right now about the truth of what they do being exposed. We got a lot to talk about with it, um, including how we're so desensitized today. We're so incredible and we're desensitized to everything and including what Planned Parenthood is doing. I think most people are desensitized. But I want to go, come back next to a, a New York Times article written in 1871. I think, hold on, why, why are we going back to 1871? Because Planned Parenthood is accusing this group of an undercover sting operation. Therefore, to try to uh, you know, downplay what is actually in, or what was uncovered by the undercover sting operation, right? attack the source, try and destroy the source. Well, this undercover sting operation, it used to be called uh, something called journalism. 
And the New York Times did the exact same thing as this group did in 1871. And the article that this New York Times reporter wrote in 1871 could have been written yesterday. We'll talk about this article coming up next. 1-888-900-3393. Again, that Pride video is on our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. We are indeed on. I want to talk about the Planned Parenthood videos here for a second. Uh, As usual, instead of debating the issues, the left will try and destroy the source of exposing the truth. We just got to make sure that we don't ever do the same thing. Um, That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tactic of someone who has nothing else to stand on. Right? Someone who's trapped in the corner will attack the source of the truth uh, or the source of the argument as opposed to the argument itself. But we can always argue the merits. So let's just make sure we never that we never do that. Um, so the Planned Parenthood, what they're saying is, oh, it's a, it's a well-funded group. And they have their secret undercover sting videos released. Uh, highly edited propaganda as a part of a decade-long attack against Planned Parenthood. I love Planned Parenthood portraying themselves as the victims. That is beautiful. That's a work of art right there. Planned Parenthood is the... Hillary had a quote the other day. I don't know if... Maybe I could pull it up here. Hillary had a quote. Um, oh, yeah. What? It's, oh, she goes, oh, such a shame. Such a... Finally, she a week and a half later, she's asked about the Planned Parenthood videos. Oh, such a shame that... There's been such a concerted attack. And I'm like, yes, go on. Keep going. You're on the right track. Such a concerted attack against, yes, against whom? Planned Parenthood for all these years. Like, oh, so close. (laughs) Planned Parenthood are not the people attacked. They're the ones doing the attacking. But thanks for playing, Hillary. Anyway, this uh, undercover investigation that this this center for medical progress did uh it used to go by a different name uh uh how do you uh journalism and not just journalism but journalism that the new york times themselves used to engage in and they used to engage in it on this very topic so i want to go back all the way to 1871 augustus saint Clair was the reporter how about that name augustus saint Clair. He was the reporter for the New York Times. And he wrote an article called The Evil of the Age. And he did an undercover investigation about abortion in New York City. Augustus went undercover as someone who wanted to get an abortion for his lady friend. And if I can just read a paragraph or two here. Opening paragraph, quote, the enormous amount of medical malpractice that exists and flourishes 
Almost unchecked in the city of New York is a theme for most serious consideration. Thousands of human beings are thus murdered before they have seen the light of this world. Front page, New York Times. And thousands upon thousands more of adults are irremediably ruined in constitution, health, and happiness. So secretly are these crimes committed, and so craftily do the perpetrators attack their victims that it is next to impossible to obtain evidence and witnesses. Facts, see this, this could be written yesterday. Facts are so artfully concealed from the public mind and appearances so carefully guarded. Oh, abortions are only 3% of what we do at Planned Parenthood. Appearances are so carefully guarded. We're all about women's health. That very meager outlines of the horrible truth have thus far been disclosed. But could even a portion of the facts that have been detected in frightful profusion by the agents of the times be revealed in print in their hideous truth, the reader would shrink from the appalling picture. I could go on, but uh, he goes on talking about the abortion rooms that he, he saw. Uh, and he, really, they're not any different than, than Kermit Gosnell's uh, abortion offices in 2013. Uh, I'll read a quote here. and you, you tell me if this is from 1831 or 2013. Human flesh, supposed to have been the remains of infants, was found in barrels of lime and acids undergoing decomposition. It's 1871. But same thing happened at Kermit Gosnell's office. So here's the nurse who uh, worked with Augustus. She said, my dear friend, we can do what you hint at. I understand the case. We've had hundreds of them. Poor, unfortunate women. How little the world knows not to appreciate their trials. We think it our mission to take them and save them. A noble work it is too. But for some, if it weren't for some friendly hands like ours, how many, many blasted homes, scandalized churches, and disorganized social circles there would be. See the delusion? Same thing that goes on today. They think they're doing God's work, right? They think they're doing God's work. They think they're healing society. They're helping churches. They're helping families. They're helping these women, these poor, unfortunate women. So instead of actually helping these women, they're going to kill their baby for them. This is why I've been saying for a long time now. But I don't think we've had a chance to talk about it on this show. Maybe we have. If you are, are disgusted by these videos and the truth of Planned Parenthood abortions and the rest, if you feel moved by them, if you want to do something so that this doesn't happen anymore, can I encourage you to contact your local crisis pregnancy center? It's what they're called, crisis pregnancy centers. These are pro-life centers who actually help women <laughs> and actually help young girls who are in what they call crisis pregnancies. And help them by getting alongside of them, by loving them, by assisting them in any way possible, by 
uh, um, uh, making available any sort of therapy, any sort of group family counseling, any anything they can provide for this woman to see through her pregnancy and then after pregnancy, helping this mom, many times a single mom, raise a baby on her own, babysitting, free diapers, formula, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff. These, pri- these, these, so here we have, in 1871, we have these abortion doctors saying, oh, poor unfortunate woman. We think it our mission to save them. A noble work it is. And look what they're doing by saving them. Right? They're killing the baby. These pro-life pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy centers, are about really helping these women alongside of them in love. And then after the birth, helping them raise their beautiful child. They do incredible work every single day in your town. And I guarantee you, they would love your help. And I know there's some people thinking, well, what do I, what can I do? Especially men. So I was talking with someone uh, from one of our local crisis pregnancy centers and, and I talked about it. I said, like, what, what could men do? And she said, oh, we need, we need men so badly to work at, and, and volunteer at our crisis pregnancy center just to provide um, a model for how a man should act, right? J- just, just to be there and hand out diapers so that these women who have many have been abused and mistreated can see a man helping out of love. She says, that's all we need. We need, we need men with no skills other than the ability to love and hand out diapers. So every single person listening right now is supremely qualified to help at a crisis pregnancy center so that you can actually help women and not deceive yourselves like the nurses back in 1871 and like the people at Planned Parenthood today deceive themselves into thinking that they're actually helping women into thinking that they're doing God's work when clearly they are not. I want to end up with this um, letter to the editor in response to this article from 1871. There's a letter to the editor. Poor women's rights are not yet fully understood and will not be if these evils flourish. I want to get to that point a little later. Let the press turn its Argus eyes towards these slums of inequity and inform and warn the public of its dangers. Let the pen of its most accomplished writer depict infocide in its foul and criminal attitude toward God and man. I love that. This is what we've been talking about for a while now, how how the people who supposedly are standing up for women's rights are the ones who are most abusing women and girls. And women's rights will never be fully understood if this evil is allowed to flourish. That's true in 1871 and it's true today. It's stunning to me that the people who who claim the mantle of women's rights are the ones promoting abortion, providing abortions, and if nothing else, killing girls. I mean, half of the babies aborted presumably are girls and you claim to be a women's rights group? How can that possibly be? I want to quote Dennis McAllister because 
the press today has no interest in telling the truth to the American people. No interest in doing that anymore. Not like the New York Times did in 1871. The New York Times uh, and all the rest, they haven't evolved. They've switched sides. There's a big difference. They've exchanged truth for lies and they call darkness light. And they no longer are journalists who speak for the voiceless. They are now the mouthpieces for the powerful. And you know what I say to that? Good. Good. More room for us to be the true voice for the voiceless. More room for us to love the most vulnerable because that's what the conservative movement is all about. The conservative movement is about supporting the most vulnerable in our society. And if the left, if the media wants to put that mantle down, beautiful. We'll pick it up. Happily. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders coming up. I want to talk about some politicians who have been doing a fantastic job in flipping the script. And it's about time. It's a thing of beauty every time they do it, right? Someone in the, in the media will uh, ask, uh, Rick Perry's good at it. Rand Paul's good. Carly Fiorina. Someone in the media will ask them about abortion. And they'll say, stop. Go ask Hillary Clinton if she thinks it's okay to kill a seven-pound baby just before it's born. Go ask Hillary Clinton if she if she thinks it's okay to crush parts of babies in order to get the liver fully intact. Go ahead. Go ask her those questions and you can get back to me. Flipping the script. It's a work of art. We'll chat about it coming up in the uh, next hour. But I want to say a final thought on how I ended the last segment. Two words I want to I wanna define. The mantle. I said if the press will put down the mantle, if the left will put down the mantle, and, and no longer be the voice of the voiceless or the voice of the most vulnerable, that's fine. That's great. We'll pick it up. The mantle is the official garment of a prophet. In biblical times, if you wear it, then you are a spokesman of God. Now, this is not easy. Uh, you know, People didn't just throw it on because they wanted to be powerful. It's an incredible responsibility. And it's a symbol of sacrifice and commitment. Because if you're wearing the mantle, I mean, you're, that's all about dedicating your life, the life that God calls you to live, which is never an easy thing. So if the left wants to put down the mantle, we'll pick it up. So that's not just an expression. There's some real truth behind that. And then also in that letter to the editor from 1871 in the New York Times, the, the, the person said, let the press... Turn its Argus eyes towards the slums of iniquity and inform and warn the, the public of its dangers. I love that line. Let the press turn its Argus eyes towards the truth. So Argus is uh, Argus Panoptes is um, in Greek mythology uh, is a giant with with a hundred eyes. Panoptes Pan means all. 
Optes is eyes like optical. So Panoptes, Argus Panoptes. So he's a big giant, hundred eyes, and he could see in every direction. And he never fell asleep. When he would fall asleep, only a couple eyes would fall asleep at a time. So he was always able to keep watch. That's us. Right? And that's what this person was saying. Let the press turn its Argus eyes towards the truth. That's us now because the truth is out there. And it requires all of our eyes and all of our perspectives to discover the truth and then to share it. That is the call if you're wearing the mantle. Which I know you are, otherwise you wouldn't be here right now. one 800 Slater Radio on Twitter. You can search for The Mike Slater Show on uh, Facebook. And you can watch our video that we posted uh, a couple days ago. It was on the blaze for a couple days. We went to the Pride Parade in San Diego, asked a couple questions, and it was uh, a lot of fun. We're approaching 200,000 views, which is pretty cool. You can check that out on our Facebook page as well. My favorite critique of this whole controversy is that you are a white supremacist for being against Planned Parenthood. We'll break that down next. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here on this beautiful Saturday. Um, Kicked off the show talking about the YouTube video we made uh, about our trip to San Diego Pride Parade last Saturday. And we uh, played two games. First was Which Bigot Said It? And we had four quotes on a, on a magnet board, one in each corner, and then uh, the, all the quotes were against gay marriage, and then we had four cutouts of uh, Republicans. Uh, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, Sarah Palin, Donald Trump, and people had to decide which bigot said which of these things against gay marriage, and then we revealed at the end that each of those quotes were from either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, and hilarity ensued. And then we asked people, uh, what percentage of the male population do you think is gay? And we asked 50 people about, and no one said less than 25%. Most answers were 40%. I'd say that was probably the average, 40 45% of men are gay, apparently, according to people at Pride. So we made a video, and actually uh, the Blaze was nice enough to put it on them uh, on, their, on uh, theblaze.com for uh, a couple days. I think it's still there somewhere. Uh, but you can also find it on uh, our Facebook page. You can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook and watch it there as we're approaching 200,000 views, which is pretty cool. So thanks for that. Um, all right. Want to uh, say a couple more things about Planned Parenthood, the videos of the last couple of days. This is more of a background uh, discussion, though. So Sally Cohen works at CNN, and she wrote a tweet. She said, no surprise that patriarchy, men, and white supremacy resort to edited videos regarding Planned Parenthood because facts alone are not on their side. <clears throat> All right. Couple of things. First, enough with the edited video nonsense. Okay? Because 
this group released the full footage and the full transcript at the exact same time as they released the eight minute video. Okay, so every video technically is edited. <laughs> All right, so for the sake of time, every video is edited. And still, you can edit video all day long. And these still these Planned Parenthood officials still talked about crushing babies. So explain that you can't edit that in. I did a reality TV show a couple years back. Uh, 72 hours on TNT. Drop three people or nine people in the middle of nowhere on a remote island in Hawaii. No food, no water. See who can make it to the finish line alive. And I distinctly remember the producer of this show saying, obviously, we're going to edit the video. But we can never make you say anything. And I think they said that to cover themselves because obviously they would make they would depict people on the show less than desirably. But they're saying, hey, listen, not our fault. If you say this swear word or if you say this horrible thing about someone, like we're not going to make you say anything. But if you say it, then you said it. So these Planned Parenthood doctors were not forced to talk about crushing the parts of babies. So let's just put the edited video nonsense to rest but here's the part i really want to talk about the white supremacy part remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the charleston shooting um and we talked about the unity bridge following it i said it's no longer about white privilege you're not going to hear white privilege as much you're now going to hear white supremacy that that's a whole new level white supremacy so white supremacy is to blame for the attack on planned parenthood and when I read that from CNN, from Sally Cohen at CNN, I said, oh, this, this, beautiful. That's fantastic. Let's go there, shall we? The founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. Born into a poor family, 11 kids, upstate New York, 1879. She became a nurse and then moved to New York City. And joined the Socialist Party. She was the she was on the Women's Committee for the uh, uh, New York Socialist Party, but her top priority was birth control. Which, fine. But then she went another step further, and under the guidance of Emma Goldman and Havelock Havelock Ellis, both eugenicists, she moved from birth control to killing, in her words, the undesirables. So eugenics uh, comes from the Greek word meaning well-born. So you, you, you is good, and then genos is, is birth. So good birth, eugenics. So the, the well-born, the, those of noble stock and race. That's what eugenics means. So she's a eugenicist. Not, she's not into woman's health. <laughs> She's into killing the undesirable. She wrote a book in 1922 called The Pivot of Civilization. The introduction was written by a fellow eugenicist who said, we want fewer and better children. And we cannot make the social life and the world peace we are determined to make with the ill-bred, ill-trained swarms of inferior citizens that you inflict on us. And 
And in her book, in her words later in the book, she says, more children from the fit, less from the unfit. That is the chief issue of birth control. (laughs) It wasn't, Margaret Sanger wasn't about the sexual revolution, right? Like have sex, don't worry about having kids. No, it was about, we don't want, presumably I'll get to, or or, uh, primarily, and we'll get to this, black people having babies, More children from the fit, less from the unfit. Her newsletter was called the Birth Control Review and the letterhead under it. So the the motto was birth control to create a race of thoroughbreds. So if that's not uh, bad enough for you, I'll go a little deeper and we'll bring this around to Sally Cohen's argument that, that white supremacists are against Planned Parenthood. Quite the opposite, Ms. Cohen. Planned Parenthood are white supremacists. Just like their founder, Sanger had what she called the Negro Project. She wrote a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble, and the letter said, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. That is the purpose of birth control. That was the original purpose of birth control, to exterminate the Negro population. So here we have the left today saying people who are against Planned Parenthood are white supremacists. When the truth is, in their founding and still today, they are the white supremacists. In New York City in 2013, more black babies were aborted than born. Think about that. 20 5,000 black babies were born in New York City. 25,000. 29,000 were aborted. Margaret Sanger would be very happy about that. 80% of Planned Parenthoods are in or near minority communities. And I love it. I got a couple emails this week from people uh, who say, you know, listen, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood, they're, uh, you can't get rid of them because this, and for many women in poor communities, that's the only health care they get. Okay, I, listen, I, listen, no one has any problem. You know, the, the argument is, well, abortion is only 3% of what they do, and maybe we can address that later. But no one has any problem with the other 97% of what Planned Parenthood does or where they are performing the other 97% of what they do. We really only have a problem with the 3%, and it's a pretty big problem. And when they're doing that primarily in minority communities, you can't tell me that they're there for the benefit of minority communities when mostly what they're doing are murdering children in minority communities. How is that in support of the minority? I'll never get it. I'll never get it. Does that, does that make sense? I'm sorry. I get so frustrated by the uh, logic of the whole thing. I, I uh, well, we need Planned Parenthood in black communities because they really provide great health services for the black for the black community. Really, like like killing more black babies than are born. That's how they. That's how they're such great supporters of the minority community. That's how they're such a great benefit of the minority community. Wow. The founder of Planned Parenthood gave a speech to the KKK in New Jersey. It went so well. She said in her book that that, that she received twelve more speaking offers. One of Sanger's closest friends, Lothrop Stoddard, in his book, he said, just as we isolate bacterial invasions 
and starve out the bacteria by limiting the amount and area of their food supply, we can compel an inferior race to remain in its native habitat, meaning black people go back to Africa. And if you stay here, we're going to breed you out. When that book came out by Lothrop Stoddard, Sanger invited him to join the board of the American Birth Control League. You get the idea. I could go on forever. The founder of Planned Parenthood created it for the purpose of killing the undesirables. And now they do the same thing, but parade under the banner of compassion and helping women. But it's the same thing. The progressive position is not all life matters. Not all life matters. Some life more than others. You know, the mother's convenience more than the baby's life. The conservative position is that all life matters. And all life deserves protection. And all life deserves a chance. So when Sally Cohen at CNN says that you, against Planned Parenthood, you're a white supremacist. What a joke. Now that you know a little bit about the founding of Planned Parenthood, and now that you know the current status of Planned Parenthood, killing more black babies than, than are born in New York City, who are the white supremacists now? one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. L.M. Smith on Twitter said you got to get Hillary's speech where she said Margaret Sanger was one of her role models. Uh, This was in 2009. She was at some testimony in front of Congress. And a congressman said some things about Margaret Sanger, pretty much what we just talked about. And and Hillary Clinton said, well, listen, Thomas Jefferson, uh, I admire him, but the man owned slaves. So... Margaret Sanger, I admire her greatly as well. And sure, the things you said I disagree with, you know, about ah, murdering off the human waste that are black people. You know, I, I don't agree with that stuff either, but that's just the way it goes sometimes. You agree with some things you disagree with others. Here she says, I admire Margaret Sanger enormously. Her courage, her tenacity, her vision. I'm really in awe of her. There are a lot of lessons we can learn from her life. Straight up, flat out, eugenicist. Unbelievable. Um, and not, I don't, all right, let me, let's take some calls here. Let me say this, Rook. Not in a time, like Thomas Jefferson owning slaves was in a time when people owned slaves. Margaret Sanger promoting eugenicism, like that never had a heyday. Didn't you know what I mean? Like that, there was never a time when, when a majority of the people believed in eugenicism. Like, that was totally out of nowhere. She's pushing that to eliminate the dead weight of human waste. Well, Hitler was a good artist, so I can at least admire that. And he was a good speechmaker. 
Uh, Jason, Washington, D.C. Jason, I haven't talked to you in a long time, brother. How you doing? Hey, man. Uh, Good, my man. You know, obviously, the stuff that's going on is disturbing on a, on many levels. But uh, the flip side, though, is, you know, if it's 3% is the abortion funding, would you be in favor of keeping the other 97% that goes for other services that are being provided? Or is this just a complete, like, we need to get rid of it across the board? Because, you know, very few people, and this is, you know, and, and, and I guess this is the main thing that what most people want to talk about when it comes to Planned Parenthood or across the board, the ability for individuals to decide when and when they do not want to have children. Now, the funny thing about it is it's, it's interesting how when people are younger, a lot of people have this idea that, like, you know, hey, you know, I want to have practice birth control, but it seems like older people are always trying to impose birth control. I mean, uh, not want to have birth control on younger people. It's it's a weird thing. I mean, a lot of the polling data, if you look at it, it's it's like people above fifty are for shutting down Planned Parenthood more so than people, you know, in their thirties and forties. Yeah, that's interesting. So I I so don't. My question for you is: Are you are you comfortable with defunding? just three percent and saying look you can't fund abortions you have to do that elsewhere and leaving the other services in place i think so right i mean i don't know fully everything else that planned parenthood does but i don't i don't i don't know anyone who has any objection to handing out condoms or mammograms or pap smears or whatever else like i do you do you know is there anything else that planned parenthood does that could be objectionable i think think yes no i don't know i mean the, the problem though is it's like you know, a good portion of that is like screening for STDs and stuff too. I mean, you know, it's providing a service. And yeah, you know, I, have, I think the hard, I, I don't want tax dollars going for, for abortions, but the flip side though, is I'm not saying to prevent abortions either. You know, I'm saying, look, if you want to fund it, go ahead and do it, make it a charity and people can support it. Sure. But I don't oh, want oh, tax I'm, dollars going for it. I, I like Jason. Thanks for the call, brother. I think we're all on the show. We're all about common ground, right? Let's find some things we can all agree on that just makes a lot of sense and we can compromise here. I think a very, very basic compromise, a stepping stone to where we ultimately want to go is to not have federal tax dollars going to Planned Parenthood. I have to imagine everyone, nearly everyone would be on board with that suggestion. So that's number one we can move on. I don't know of anything else that Planned Parenthood does that's objectionable. So I'm not against women's health. I'm against abortion. And if that's 3% of what they do, then fine. Planned Parenthood, stop doing that, and you shouldn't even see a, a dent in your business model, right? That's the part I think everyone else has an issue with. So, Jason, I appreciate that because maybe I can change my tone and change my rhetoric and and change it a little bit away from being like, down with Planned Parenthood, and we'll, okay, down with this part of Planned Parenthood. Because I don't think, I don't know, I don't know fully, but I don't think anything else they do is objectionable. But then my other thing that I've always said is not only down with Planned Parenthood, but up with the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And that's the key. And that's why I want to go to Jim in Minnesota. Jim, how are you, sir? Fine. How are you doing today? Good. We only got about two minutes, but it says here that you were uh, used to work, you used to work at a crisis pregnancy center. No, actually, I was on the board of a crisis pregnancy center down in Southern Maryland when I was in the Navy. So not Wonderful. only a full-time sailor, but I was doing that on the side. And then, of course, I also took a fight in the walk for life. And in fact, our church, uh, we have a really nice pregnancy center that you know, gives out diapers and stuff like that to, uh, you know, you know, mothers are expecting. And uh, anyway, but, uh, you know, I, I have no problem to give to organizations like that. And uh, like I said, I, I really have a trouble. With, I don't think all I, I heard Planned Parenthood does is pass mirrors. Uh, you know, screening for STDs and handing out birth control. The mammograms, that's a bunch of crap. Not true. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, I, yeah I, I apologize for even saying that. You're right. I heard that they just they forward people off to doctors who do the uh, yeah. mammogram stuff. Why? What's the difference between a crisis pregnancy center, the one you were on the board of, and a Planned Parenthood? What's the philosophical difference? Because they are compassionate toward the mother and want to do best for the mother and the child. The uh, I mean, say that Planned Parenthood wants to get an abortion. They want that's the most that's basically get bread and butter. Is that's where their money is? Is from abortion. That's where they want to push it for abortion. That's what they're all for. Yep, uh, Jim. Appreciate the call very much, brother. Thank you for your service yeah. on on the ship and also uh, at these crisis pregnancy centers. I talked with a uh, someone who worked at a Planned Parenthood for nine years until she finally got out. And she said an abortion costs about $100 for the doctors, the medicine, all the rest. Um, and they charge at least four or $500. And they can go up into four or $5,000. Um, that's what they charge the people who do it. So they're making good money off doing that. I've also talked to a woman who um, didn't know what she wanted to do with her pregnancy, her crisis pregnancies. Uh, so she went to a Planned Parenthood. They pushed an abortion. They said, here's, here's your date for the abortion we signed you up for. Go if you want to go. She missed it. They signed her up for another abortion day. Like, encourage her. Hey, it's you just go. I'll sign you. And she's like, I don't know if I want to go. Like, no, no, no. We'll sign you up anyway. You go if you want to go. Luckily, she found a crisis pregnancy center, and now she has a beautiful baby girl. True compassion. True pro-women. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, there's two candidates for president who I think are doing a uh, really good job so far. Long way to go, obviously. But, uh, Rick, Perry, uh, Rick Perry, Carly Fiorina. Listen to how both of these candidates answer the abortion question. They flip the script, and it's a thing of beauty. Let's start with uh, Rick Perry on MSNBC. This is clip three. Governor, I'd like to ask you a couple questions about Planned Parenthood. Uh, there's a controversy swirling around them that you've weighed in on. First, I'd like you to say, does Planned Parenthood do anything, provide any services that you think are valuable? If so, what are they? And second, why are you so troubled by this video? Well, Again, we, we can stop there. So what a schmarmy question, right? It's sort of what we were talking about yesterday, but, but or in the last segment, but not the point. <laughs> right, of what we're talking about with these videos, right? Do they do anything good? And quite frankly, I don't think the good they do negates the horrible, awful things that they do every single day to the point where we should f- ignore the awful things. Does that make sense? So in the last segment, I was saying, you know, uh, Jason called and he's like, well, you know, what about the things that they do? I mean, do you have any qualms with those? I'm like, I don't think I have any qualms with the 97% of the other things they do. So keep the 97, but just because they do 90, 97% of what they do is good doesn't mean we should ignore the 3%. Does that make sense? The difference there? Keep doing the 97%. But just because you do the 97% doesn't mean we ignore the 3%. 
I don't care if you do a thousand breast cancer screenings. If you do one abortion, they don't cancel each other out. And Rick Perry did not take the bait. Clip four. Concern about. And Mark, let me ask you, uh, you looked at that video and you're good with it? I think the video raises a lot of questions and, and you and others have raised them. It does them. indeed. And I think you've just answered the question for us. Thank you. <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. And <laughs> that great? Like they had no idea what to do. It's all about flipping the narrative. Why should we have to talk about why? Uh, why should we have to be the ones to argue what Planned Parenthood does is bad? You, Mark Halperin, you tell me why what they do is good. You tell me. You tell me by why what you saw in that video is perfectly acceptable to you. You tell me what's good about harvesting aborted babies' organs. Well, it raises a lot of questions. It's a pathetic response. Good. More flipping the script. We need more of that. Carly Fiorina did the same thing. This is her on CNN with Jake Tapper. Clip 5. What's your position on this legislation, which does not allow exceptions for rape and incest? Well, let's talk about the legislation that's sitting on the Senate floor right now, uh, which does allow for those exceptions. So but you let's think also those, you think let's also talk about let's also talk about Hillary Clinton's position. Let's talk about what extreme is. It's not a life until it leaves the hospital. That's Hillary Clinton's position. It's Hillary Clinton's position that a 13-year-old girl needs her mother's permission to go to a tanning salon or get a tattoo, but not to get an abortion. It's Hillary Clinton's position that women should not be permitted to look at an ultrasound before an abortion, and yet people who are trying to harvest body parts can use ultrasound to make sure that those body parts are preserved so they can be sold. That, Jake, is extreme. Beautiful. Also, Carly's doing this whole thing, right? Her whole campaign, she's already running against Hillary Clinton. So she did the same thing here with this clip right here. Just to, just to clarify, do you think there should be an exception for rape and incest? I would really be delighted if for once the media would ask Hillary Clinton about the extremism of her position. Well, let, it's let it, not let it. a life. It's not a life until it leaves the hospital. My position is very clear. It's been clear and consistent ever since I ran for the Senate in 2010. Anyone can look it up. Yes, I support exceptions. But the majority of the American people now believe that abortion for any reason at all to be paid for by taxpayers after five months is an abomination. And this videotape, whether you're a pro-choice woman or a pro-life woman, this videotape is depraved. The casual nature with which these people are talking about fetuses and tissue and specimens. I tell you what, if a woman was looking at that ultrasound at that same stage in her pregnancy, the doctor would not be talking about fetuses or specimens or tissues. They would be saying, look at your baby's heartbeat. Look at your baby's eyes. Look at your baby's organs. Awesome. So that's what she, she's saying. Listen. Stop asking me about it. You know my position. Go ask the person who supports Planned Parenthood what they think about it. Go ask the person who won the Margaret Sanger Award in 2008. That's the highest award that's given by Planned Parenthood. And we talked about who Margaret Sanger is in the last half hour. So for the love of Pete, go ask Hillary Clinton what she thinks about these videos. But no, we got to ask every Republican what they think about uh, uh, rape and incest exemptions, <laughs> right? Like, like rape and incest are less than 1% of all abortions. So stop with that already. Let's talk about the 99% of 
of abortions. And in Oregon, to go back to one of Carly's points, in Oregon, you can get a sex change operation at 15 without parental consent paid for by tax dollars. So you can't use a tanning bed in Oregon without parental consent at 15, but you can get a sex change operation. And the same thing is true with abortions as well. we got a couple minutes here. I want to play one more clip of um, Carly here while we're chatting about her. Uh, This is her on The View a few months ago explaining feminism. Clip seven. I believe that a feminist is any woman who lives the life she chooses. I make no value judgments on the kind of life a woman lives as long as she chooses her life and somebody isn't choosing it for her or she's being denied something because of her gender. Nice. So... Uh, perfect definition. Then Whoopi chimed in. Clip eight. I assume you are a a, a person who is very sort of pro-life and, and believes in that. So are you going to run as a person who's going to govern for everyone? Or are you running on your Christian beliefs? What, because I, you said some wonderful things and it made me ask the question, if you feel that women should have the choice, have the choices, why do you think choice is not a good thing? Ah, glad you asked, Whoopi. Very simple answer to that. You have the freedom of choice in your life, of your life, over your life, but you don't have the choice over someone else's life. You don't have the choice, certainly, to kill someone else. Big difference here. And there's this interesting dichotomy that Whoopi lays out. She says, do you want to be the representative of all people? Or are you running on your Christian beliefs? This is actually pretty interesting. There's um, Some people say, and I've said uh, before, you can't legislate morality. Right? You've heard that before? You maybe said it. You can't legislate morality. And I agree with that to a great extent. But at the same time, you must also recognize that almost all legislation is legislating morality. You can be the most progressive person. You can be the biggest atheist. You can be the most immoral person. But if someone steals your car, you're going to call the police. Because we've decided as a people that it's immoral to steal. So now it's against the law. The immorality came first. The the judgment of morality came first, then the law. It's not wrong to steal because it's against the law. It's wrong to steal, therefore, it's against the law. How do we know it's wrong to steal? Because we as a society have made a moral judgment that you can't steal from other people. And we've decided as a people that you can't murder someone. That's a moral judgment that we have built into our law. So sorry, you don't have that choice. And that should also apply to babies. It's very simple. So again, this dichotomy, well, are you running, are you representative of all people or on your Christian beliefs? No, Carly's running to represent all people, all people, including unborn babies. So truly all people, way more people whoopee than you are interested in serving and protecting. I'll end with this. Michael Weir, he tweeted, 
it should bother us as a society that we have use for aborted human organs, but not the baby that provides them. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Later. Got a couple minutes here. I can clarify something I said in the last segment. Um, again, this idea that you can't legislate morality. Uh, I used to say that a lot. Uh, but at the same time, all laws legislate morality. So let's break this down for a second. This is important. Um, can you legislate morality? Got to look at it two ways. First, can you make people moral through laws absolutely not if only it was that easy right if only you could pass a law and then people would instantly be more no way but the second way to look at it is are laws written to govern people's moral behavior absolutely yes so in the first case can you make people moral through laws no it's illegal to use drugs people still do It's illegal to uh, rape. People still do. It's illegal to murder. People still do. It's illegal to drive above the speed limit. People still do, right? So you can't make people moral through laws, but you can't just throw away morality out of our legal system because all laws are written based on a code of morality. You can't murder someone because it's wrong. We know it's wrong because we have a code of morals that says it's wrong. So we made it against the law. Morality comes first, then the law. Not the other way around. So the point is, if if you say, you know, well, we can't legislate morality, take it to the extreme. I mean, that means you shouldn't legislate against murder because, I mean, you can't make people not murder. And who's to say that murder is wrong anyway, right? That's your moral code, not mine. So murder should be allowed. No, that's not how it works. There are morals we all agree to, and we legislate accordingly. Let me, let me say this sentence. This is, the, this is the sentence that made it really click for me. Something is right. Something is morally right. Not because it's the law. The goal is to find what is right. And then make it the law. And I've heard this a lot actually the last week or so. When it comes to illegal immigration. With conservatives and Republicans missing this point. I've heard a lot of people justify. Or or, um, a lot of people want to enforce immigration laws. And they'll say it's the law. Right. That's the argument. The argument is well it's the law. So we should deport people because it's the law. Well, mm, that's not good because separating blacks and whites on buses was the law. Slavery was the law. Apartheid in South Africa was the law. Just because it's the law doesn't make it right. doesn't make it the right thing to do. So the goal needs to be to find out what is right, 
why it's right, and then make it the law so that it can stand up on its own merit and not the feeble argument of, well, it's the law. So if you think we should deport people, go a step further, and you say, well, it's the law, go a step further. Why is it the law? And make that argument, not this weak, well, it's the law. Because I've heard it, I've heard it used both ways. I was listening to Hannity the other day, and Hannity uh, did a segment on illegal immigration. And I heard someone say, one of his callers or whatever, say, we need to enforce immigration laws because it's the law. And then in the very next segment, he had some liberal on talking about abortion and said, abortion is okay because it's the law. Both terrible arguments. Terrible arguments. So the goal needs to be to find out what is right and then make it the law. And this isn't, I mean, Cicero talked about this. Uh, Cicero said true law is right reason and agreement with nature of universal application, unchanging and everlasting. John Law, uh, John Locke talked about the laws of nature, our very own Declaration of Independence. The opening sentence talks about the laws of nature uh, and the laws that nature's God entitles us to. You get the idea. The point is, truth is first. Morality is first. Then the law comes next for the purpose of legislating said morality. So can we bring it to abortion? Can we force people to be moral? No, never. But that doesn't mean we throw the concept of morality out the window. So with abortion, apply the laws of nature. Killing life is wrong. We know that's wrong. It's morally, well, not to me. No, it's morally wrong. Make it the law. And then help women through their pregnancies. I've said it all show and we've said it for a long time. Please contact your local crisis pregnancy center if you feel called to be a part of this. Um, These are the pro-life pregnancy centers. They help get alongside women, help them through their pregnancies and then beyond as well. You can't just tear down Planned Parenthood. You also have to lift up the alternative. Help women through their pregnancies because... Not because it's law, but because it's the right thing to do. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, Donald Trump, shall we? Sort of. (laughs) I'm sure you're Trumped out. Pat and Stu for a while, that's all they talked about. So it's a Trump-free zone. Uh, I don't really want to talk about Donald Trump, but I want to use Donald Trump to talk about something that, that's uh, much more important than him, uh, which he'll disagree with because nothing's more important than him. Remember, gosh, was this early? Was this this week? That last weekend, I suppose, when he talked about John McCain, right? How he prefers people who aren't captured. <laughs> um, he said something else at that same event, and I want to play a clip of that. So he was in Iowa. And he was front of a, uh, in front of an evangelical crowd. 
and he was asked the following question. Take this all in. We're going to play a minute 17 of this. So take all this, uh, take all the Trumpness that Trump has to offer in a minute and 17 seconds. So we've got people lined up for questions. I just got one more because you used the word Christian. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? That's a tough question. I, I don't think in terms of, I have, I'm, I'm a religious person. Shockingly, because people are so shocked when they find this out. Uh, I'm Protestant. I'm Presbyterian. And I go to church and I love God and I love my church. And Norman Vincent Peale, the great Norman Vincent Peale was my pastor. The power of positive thinking. Everybody's heard of Norman Vincent Peale. He was so great. He would give a sermon you never wanted to leave. Sometimes we have sermons, and every once in a while we think about leaving a little early, right, even though we're Christian. <laughs> Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, Frank, would give, a survey, would give a sermon. I'm telling you, I still remember his sermons. It was unbelievable. And what he would do is he'd bring real-life situations, modern-day situations, into the sermon. And you could listen to him all day long. When you left the church, you were disappointed that it was over. He was the greatest guy. And then, you know, he passed away, but he was a great... The, the, he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, which is but, a great book. But have you ever asked God for forgiveness? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> stop there for a second. So, um, first point here, and, and we're not going to get all Bible-thumping here, but if you talk for a minute and 17 seconds about your Christian faith, and you don't mention God or Jesus, not a great start. Here's the rest of it. I'm not sure I have. I just go and try and do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think I, if, I, if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, when I take, you know, when we go and church and, and when I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker. I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness, and I do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed, okay? But, uh, you know, to me, that's important. I do that. But in terms of officially, I, should, I see, I could say absolutely, and everybody, I don't think in terms of that. I, I think in terms of let's go on and let's make it right. So let's... Again, you, you've gone into it. If I don't ask this question, this audience will be disappointed. Straight question. What is your relationship with God? Well, I pray. I go to church. Uh, do I do things that are wrong? I guess so. You know, uh, I'm a business person. I really do well at business. I, I, I've done great. I've made some of the great deals. I own some, I own some of the greatest properties in the world. Am Did I God totally... Help you do these I, great I, can, deals? I think God helped me. Personally, I think God helped me. I think, you know... Look, God helped me by giving me a certain brain, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, I, I went through a phenomenal school, the Wharton School of Finance, which is said to be the greatest business school in the world. I did really well there. I was a great student. Uh, so, I mean, I was born with a certain intellect that is good for this. John McCain goes... All right, I think that's enough. <laughs> that's, not, that's all I can do. So, um, there, there's a, that, that's a caricature of Donald Trump right there. So, I don't want to talk about him. Let's move on. I just want to use that as an example uh, of something bigger. Benjamin Franklin rated among the highest of the virtues, humility. And I feel we undervalue this in our society today. It, it, it's an extremely important characteristic of a great leader. And I think we often get it confused. We, we think a great leader needs to know everything. 
We think a great leader needs to graduate top of his class from Wharton Business School, one of the best business schools in the country because he's a great, right? That's why Trump is appealing because he, he presents himself in the way of the stereotypical great leader. But a real great leader knows that he doesn't know everything. We think a great leader is one who's tough and straight talking and commands people around, but a great leader is thoughtful and listens and persuades. And this isn't just me. The Greeks talked about hubris all the time. Hubris, pride, was the downfall of all the great men and gods. Achilles is the uh, classic example. In the Iliad, um, uh, Agamemnon took Achilles' slave woman from him. And then the king told Achilles to go to battle. And, and because he had his woman taken from him, he pouted. He's like, I'm not going to war. And he pouted and he packed up and he started to head back to Greece. Meanwhile, his comrades are out dying. And Achilles even prayed to Zeus to have his comrades lose so that they would come back begging for him to help. He was super prideful. He wasn't fighting for the men around him. He was fighting for his own glory. And he wouldn't fight until he was sure that he was going to be the one who was glorified in the fighting. And you got to question someone's motives who would be motivated by self over others. Compare Achilles to George Washington, for example. Totally different. And for the record, our founding fathers were 100% aware of the old Greek myths and literature. They knew, they knew exactly who Achilles was, and they knew how important humility was. Ben Franklin said, there's perhaps none of our natural passions that are so hard to subdue as pride. He said, disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases and it's still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. Now, I don't think Trump's ever tried to subdue it, which is fine for him. I don't care. But I don't know if that's good for someone who's trying to be president. Because, and here's the best part about humility. Here's the best part. Without it, you will never get anything productive done. And you think, oh, well, hold on, Slater. Trump's gotten a lot of stuff done. Well, money talks in business. And you're saying, well, yeah, but money talks in politics too. Not when you're trying to persuade people to change their opinions on issues. What's Trump going to do? Pay people to vote for him or pay people to support his party? I mean, that's not, that's not how that works. Money works in D.C., but money doesn't work in persuading people to change their opinions on issues as a part of the conservative movement, which is really what we're trying to do. I want to play a clip here from a great leader. One who understood the importance of humility, a one Nelson Mandela. The first thing is to be honest with yourself. You can never have an impact on society if you have not changed yourself. And one of the most important weapons in changing yourself is to recognize that peace, I mean, people 
everywhere in the world want peace. But humility is one of the most important qualities which you must have. Because if you are humble, if you make people realize that uh, you are no threat to them, then people will embrace you. They will listen to you. Do you agree? Do you agree that is humility one of the most important qualities that a great leader can have? I think so, because what's our goal? Really, really, I was thinking about this the other day. What's our goal? To win an election. Mm. I don't know. I want something more than that. I, I don't want that to be the goal. I want that to be a, a consequence of achieving the goal. I want to discover the truth in every issue. And then once people help me discover it, I want to help as many other people discover it as well. And if we do that, then we'll win elections. So let's say Donald Trump absolutely has found the truth. Let's say he's 100% right when it comes to everything. <laughs> but let's just say illegal immigration because that's been his thing, right? So let's say he's got all the answers. He has every 100% truth, 100%. No one will ever embrace the truth that he's discovered. So it's a waste. And not no one will. 50% of people won't. Just because of the way he approaches it. So what's the point? It's the same thing. You can work to buy the biggest house in the world. But if you have no family to enjoy it with, what's the point? You can work to afford the nicest vacation in the world, but if you have no friends to go with, what's the point? You can work um, on your singing voice all day long, but if you never get out and sing and make people feel the emotion, uh, emotion of your singing, what's the point? So let's say Donald Trump has found the truth with illegal immigration or whatever, what's the point if his pride turns everyone off from listening? It does a disservice to the truth. I'll end on this note. General MacArthur, who no one would ever call him weak, right? General MacArthur? Would you, is there anyone on this planet who would say, oh yeah, what a weakling. What a wuss. <laughs> he wrote a, a prayer to his son. I'll just read the final line of this prayer. He said, I pray, give my son humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, and the weakness of true strength. How about that sentence? I, I give my son humility so that he may always remember the weakness of true strength. General MacArthur, what an interesting thought. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Great line, Nelson Mandela. You cannot ever have an impact on society if you have not changed yourself. One of the most important weapons uh, in changing yourself is to recognize uh, humility. The most important qualities you must have uh, is because if you are humble, then people will embrace you. They will listen to you. It's difficult to accept. I don't really know why, uh, but I, I guess when most people imagine the quintessential leader, it's a strong, powerful, commanding person, right? I don't know, but the, the, the goal is to get people to embrace you and then also our principles and then ultimately our policies. So I, I was doing some research on Ben Franklin on this topic from his autobiography. And he tells a story of a friend of his coming up to him and saying, Ben, you are full of pride. And Ben says, whatever, man. <laughs> How would you react if someone came up to you and said, you're full of pride? He goes, what are you talking about? And the friend goes, yeah, when you're in a discussion, you're overbearing, you're rude, and you're disrespectful. So what do you think Ben's response was? What anyone's response would be? Like when? <laughs> right? That's what it always is, right? Hey, man, you're overbearing, you're rude, and disrespectful. No, I'm not. Name one time. So his friend listed off a bunch of times. And Ben goes, oh, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. So Ben Franklin decided to become more humble, and he worked at it. And he did something with his speech. And this is something I need to work on myself. I'll quote uh, from his autobiography. Um, and, and as I read this, let me know if you have the same reaction I had. When I first read this, my first reaction was, weakling. Like, what a, what a wuss. It's Ben Franklin for the love of Pete. And here I am being like, what a softy, what a loser. Here it is. This is what he said. He said, I made it a rule to forbid myself the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as certainly or undoubtedly. And I adopted instead of those, well, I believe or... I apprehend or I conceive or I imagine a thing to be so or so, or it appears to me at present. And when another, someone else, asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him, contradicting him abruptly and of showing him immediately some absurdity in his proposition. And in answering, I began by observing that, well, sure, in certain cases or circumstances, your opinion might be right. But in the present case, there appears to me some difference. I soon found the advantage of this charge in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went on more pleasantly. All right, so I'll stop there. So first time I read that, I said, what it was. What it was. If you're right, and, and we know we are, let the person know it. Let them know it with all your might. Make it hurt. <laughs> right? like, what good does it do to soften your language? When, especially when making your arguments that you know are the truth. So why, why would you say, well, I believe, or 
Um, sure, you may be right, but in certain circumstances like this one, I believe that. Why, why would you do that? That was my first thought. And Ben Franklin answered it. Ready? He says, to this habit, I think it principally owing that I had early so much weight with my fellow citizens when I proposed new institutions like, I don't know, United States of America or alterations in the old and so much influence in public councils when I became a member because I was a bad speaker, never eloquent. I was subject to much hesitation in my choice of words, hardly correct in my language. And yet, I generally carried my points. So here's Ben Franklin saying the reason he was so influential in founding the United States of America, in being ambassador to a couple countries, in being the first postmaster general, in being uh, the first fire chief of Philadelphia, in founding a university, right? So he did a couple of things. Everything that Ben Franklin did, he said he, he said he was successful not because he was a good speaker. He wasn't. Not because he was eloquent. He wasn't. Not because he even knew the right words. He wasn't. It was because he was humble and agreeable. And because of those two things, he generally got his way and won every argument. And now he's on the $100 bill. I don't know. There's something to be said for that. And I know this here's angry right-wing talk radio says he's not going to state his opinions anymore. No, no, that's not it. We're going to continue to find the truth, but we're going to find ways to articulate it so that other people can then see it and feel it and know it and understand it just the same way that you do. And there's certainly a right way to do it. If we all just yell at each other, who cares? Like, whatever. We got to get other people to see what it is that you know. And that's fun. It's exciting. We're going to discover the truth together, and we're going to help more people see it the same way. I love it. What a great calling. one 888 Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater slater crusaders i were just chatting about um humility and uh how to best present uh our, the truth and i remember that the other day i was listening to a podcast of arthur brooks he has a new book called the conservative heart i just got it the other day um and it's all about this concept i haven't read the book yet but i, I really look forward to uh checking out i, th- I think there's I read a little bit. I, th- I think there's some answers in here that are very, very helpful. Um, it's about speaking to different people. And this is what I want. I want more than anything. I want in the next 10 years, well, really 18 months, but 18 months to 10 years, long-term goal, 10 years, 
I want for black, a majority of black people, Hispanic people, and poor single moms to be voting for conservatives. Because the principles and policies of the conservative movement are best for black people, Hispanic people, and poor single moms. Let me say it again. The conservative principles, social and economic, I believe are the best principles and policies for black people, Hispanic people, and poor single moms. People who for decades have been voting for the Democratic Party. We need to get different people to recognize not just that what they've been voting for has failed. That's easy. We got to get different people to recognize that what we are fighting for has worked and will work again for you. So I was listening to this podcast of Arthur C. Brooks uh, on The Federalist website, which is a wonderful, wonderful group, thefederalist.com. And he said, he starts off with this premise that we, we need to get groups like single moms and all the rest. We need to come to them with, with a, a new set of arguments. And his whole point is we got to be speaking from the heart because our movement is about lifting people up. It's not about economic efficiency. Yes, it is. That's good. We get that. But for everyone else, we have to package our presentation, not lie, not pander, not change anything, but package it, rebrand it to prove that we're fighting for the vulnerable. So he's asked by uh, one of the people in the podcast, about the Pope's statement a couple weeks ago against capitalism, essentially. Um, and how do we have conversations with people like this? Here's what he says. The, the way that you combat what the Pope says, it's the same as with any other good-hearted liberal out there. Uh, you, you actually combat it by saying what's written on your heart. The main reason that people on the left who are open-minded and not bad people the, the reason that they're skeptical of our points of view is because they don't think that we love vulnerable people enough. That's the problem that the Pope has. That's the problem that my family and friends had growing up. They need an excuse to come along with us. So many people are looking for an excuse to come along with us. But as long as we sound like we hate immigrants, that we we are, are biased against women, that we don't like the poor because we think they're moochers and takers, they're not going to have an excuse. There's not going to be op an open door. Okay. The argument with the Pope is the same as with anybody else. Say what's written on our hearts. We have the best solutions for the people who need us the most, and then prove Let's, it. We'll stop there. We're going to bounce around for a second because I literally just sent this over uh, to producer Steve. So we're going to bounce around here, and it's going to be a little sloppy. But um, how do you? Like, does anyone disagree with that? I mean, I, that sounds that sound. It doesn't. It feel right. It feels right because I know we have. The best policies and principles for the most vulnerable. I know we have them. I want to play a few more clips here. Compassionate conservatism was a terrible idea because it suggested that conservatism is not compassionate. It suggested that we need some sort of qualifier for conservatism. We don't have a heart. No, I'm saying that it looks like we don't because okay. we don't talk about the fact that our solutions are the best solutions for people in poverty. Conservatism, as really as as you and I understand it, as we have uh, developed it in our institutions, is the most compassionate set of solutions for people in need. We need to deploy it for that particular reason and shatter from the rooftops that this is the reason that we're doing it in the first place. Then we don't need to have a big welfare state administered by people who are slightly more conservative than the than members of the Democratic Party. And we don't need a qualifier for conservatism. We can then have a, a, a moral consensus in this country that we should be in the business of creating opportunity and freedom for absolutely everybody and push it all the way down to the bottom 
bottom of the income distribution and then have a big competition of ideas about who can do it better. That's something that people really crave. That's something that will, will unlock the voting power of younger people who are willing to think for themselves. And I think that that's actually the optimistic solution for a new wave of conservatism. So opportunity and freedom. I, I really, and I know there's, we get a lot of stories of people who are, you know, manipulating the welfare system and living with Obama phone. We, we get stories of that. I really don't think that's a majority of people. I don't. I really think a majority of people will vote for opportunity and freedom when they're presented with those two things in a way that clearly articulates how that will benefit their life. I think people want opportunity and freedom, but the left does such a better job of presenting the opposite of those things because they're like, no, 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 you don't want freedom. You want welfare. You want these benefits. You want these perks. You want Obamacare. That's going to lower your premiums. This, like All these government things are going to help you. And we're saying, no, we want opportunity. We want freedom. And, and people are thinking, well, yeah, so do I. But this guy's giving me free money over here. So we have to say, no, no, no. We want opportunity and freedom. Here's why. Here's how this is going to make your life way better than what those other people are trying to peddle you. I'm going to play one more clip here. The key is not... Not to say, don't be angry anymore. It's to deploy your anger to fight for people as opposed to fighting against things. It's the most important thing to remember. Minority political opinions fight against things. Minority political opinion fights against Obamacare. The majority political opinion fights for the victims of Obamacare. Don't fight against teachers' unions. Fight for children who are receiving an inadequate education. You wind up in the same policy position, but the locus of your attention, of your policy attention, is entirely different. Be as angry as you want, but only on behalf of people who need you to fight. So don't fight against things. Fight for people. Use the Obamacare example. Don't fight against Obamacare. This is Arthur Brooks' suggestion. Don't fight against the concept of Obamacare. Now, you and I, let me make this point too. This, this, his argument, Arthur C. Brooks, it's not ways to talk with other conservatives. It's for ways for conservatives to talk to non-conservatives, apathetic people, progressives, whoever, which is the majority of people don't pay attention to this stuff. You and I, if we're talking about Obamacare, yeah, we're going to talk about how prices are distorted. We're going to talk about how incentives are messed up. We're going to talk about how government is going to make uh, more decisions for you. We're going to talk about how it destroys insurance markets. We're going to talk about right. We're going to talk about Medicare, Medicare. We're going to talk about all these things, but those aren't things to fight against outside of the echo chamber. Outside of the echo chamber, we got to fight for people. So if we talk about how insurance markets are destroyed, how is that going to affect grandma? How is that going to affect everyone's mother? How is that going to affect everyone's child? Find that out and then fight for those people. That is the compassionate thing. And that is who we are. And it's the only way to get people to see it. Because if you fight against Obamacare... No one wants that. I mean, no one, no, that doesn't appeal to people. But if we fight for the people who are hurt by Obamacare, well, now we're talking. I lied. I got one more clip here. People who've built 
their lives in this book on, on and by conservative principles, not on purpose. Here's the interesting thing. There's a guy I met in New York. He had been in prison for 18 years. He had gone to prison as a teenager. He gets out of prison. He's homeless, has never had a job, never had an apartment. And he goes into a, a, a private nonprofit homeless shelter dedicated to the dignity of work. And their whole approach is that nobody's a liability to manage. Everybody's an asset to develop. Now, why is that important? Because government welfare programs treat people as liabilities to manage. We as individuals, particularly conservative individuals, see in everybody an asset to develop. This guy's name is Richard. He got his first job with an exterminator agency, and he told me the reason he's happy, he shows me an email from his boss, says, emergency bed bug job, East 65th Street, I need you now. I said, this is why you're happy? What? I don't understand. He said, look at it again. He says, I need you now. That is the first time in my life that somebody has needed me now. That's the source of dignity. That's the source of being created in God's image. That's what comes from conservative values that treat every single person as an asset to develop. And those are the stories. The book is full of them, but our life is full of them. We need to get better at storytelling. Arthur Brooks, uh, The Conservative Heart is the name of the book. Conservative principles don't need to be combative. They speak for themselves. And the truth is all around us. Because I don't, I don't, this is an honest, honest point here. I don't know what it looks like to be successful because of Democratic Party principles. Like, what does that look like? I know what being on welfare looks like, but I don't know what success looks like from Democratic Party principles. Conservatives fight for the vulnerable, always have. So it's time we take that mantle back, take that branding back. I want to give it one example. We're going to take a break here. We'll come back. Unions. So I have been on the forefront of strong language against unions. And that works great for people who are already against unions. But how do I speak? How do I take that same policy position, the same principles, and talk to someone who's in a union as to why? There should not be unions. I have a suggestion. I want to throw it out there. We'll do it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, we got three minutes. Let's give an example of everything we've been talking about the last half hour here. Um, let me be clear. I'm not saying that conservatives should change what we believe in. There's no pandering here. It's just how we pitch it. Example, unions. I have made many mistakes in my packaging of being against unions. And I uh, have told people that unions are awful and destroy private sector growth and they suck the public coffers dry. And I still think that that's absolutely true. But that does no good to people who are in unions, <laughs> right? People who have invested so much uh, into the union philosophy and who truly believe that their livelihood is dependent on a strong union, they'll never change their minds no matter what argument I make about how unions are bad 
So here's something else that's 100% absolutely true that will appeal to someone in a union. Scott Walker, Wisconsin. He eliminated the public sector unions and he made Wisconsin a right-to-work state, which means you're not forced to join a union. Okay, So if you go into a profession in the past, you were forced to join the union. Now you can choose to join that union. You know what that did? Other than decrease the unemployment rate and increase household income and all the rest. But you know what it did? It made unions a lot better for the employees. How? Well, in the past, you're forced to join a union. So the union takes your money and lobbies the politicians. Now, because you're not forced to join the union, the union works not for the politicians, but for you. And now they have to do more to convince you to give them your money. In the past, they would take your money and they took you for granted because you had no choice but to give them 100 bucks a month or whatever it was. But now they have, you're not forced to join the union, so they have to come to you and say, Charlie, please join the union. And you say, oh, what's in it for me? Well, we'll give you all these benefits. Eh, I don't know. It's not worth it for me. No, thanks. Okay, all right. We'll give you these benefits and, and, and all these. I don't know, 100 bucks. Nah, I'm good. No, I don't, I'm still not. Okay, all right. This is what we're going to do, Charlie. We'll give you these benefits plus these benefits and all of these. And Charlie says, all right, I'm in. So now the unions are so much more responsive to the employees, to you, the union member. Where they used to take you for granted because you were forced to join, now they have to serve you. Same policy. We want a right-to-work state. And in the past, I would frame it as destroy the unions. Are you with me, union members? <laughs> and no one ever would be. But now it's, hey, let's have a right-to-work state. Union members, this is good for you. Because now the union will provide you many more benefits than you have right now. And those union bosses are going to pay less attention to politicians with your money. And they're going to pay more attention to you with your money. And the union bosses are going to serve you better. Are you with me? on becoming a right-to-work state. The union will be stronger for you. Same policy, different packaging. And name one person who can genuinely be against that policy. No one. In the past, it was forced unionization means strong unions. Right-to-work means no unions. Now it's forced unionization means weak unions. Weak as in unresponsive. To the employee. Now, right to work means unions that are actually doing their original job, what they used to do, serve the employees. We have to find ways to take our conservative principles, take our conservative policies and our philosophy, package it so that more people can see that the conservative movement is truly the movement for the most vulnerable and everyone else. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. See you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.